0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight's topic uh, is equine gastric issues and digestive health. This event is brought to you by our sponsor, Purina. An upset digestive system in horses can lead to much bigger problems, ranging from gastric ulcers to colitis to colic. To answer your questions, we're joined tonight by Dr. Alicia Long of the University of Pennsylvania's School of Veterinary Medicine's New Bolton Center. Dr. Long is a fellow in large animal emergency and critical care. She also has a research interest in equine microbiome and internal medicine. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Long.
1: Thanks so much, Michelle. It's great to be here.
0: Uh, So let's start out by having you tell us a little bit about your background with horses and then also your work and experience treating horses that have digestive
1: and gastric issues sure yeah so uh, i grew up with horses Uh, my mother uh, we had horses at our farm and um, so that was kind of what started me uh, being interested in horses and uh, we had mostly draft horses and draft cross Um, and so i did um, you know kind of various things with them as far as driving and pulling and and everything like that and some riding of them as well Uh, and um, in veterinary school i knew that i wanted to work with horses that was kind of where my uh, career path went that way And um, I have uh, just recently finished uh, residency in internal medicine, Um, and I'm now, as you said, doing my fellowship in emergency and critical care. And, you know, unfortunately for our horses, uh, equine gastrointestinal diseases are really one of the most common emergencies that we see, um, hence colic, Um, as well as, uh, you know, in my internal medicine residency, we certainly uh, deal with a lot of chronic colic issues, uh, gastric ulcers, um, you know, chronic diarrhea, other things like that. So... Certainly have uh, seen a number of cases of that. And then, as you said, uh, my current research interests are mostly focusing on the microbiome, uh, particularly the use of uh, fecal microbial transplant. So uh, that's, that's currently where I'm trying to get some more information and see how we can use it to, to help horses.
0: So. Yeah, so the microbiome has become such an interesting topic in the last few years. How, how did it pique your interest? How did you end up doing that kind of work?
1: Yeah, so honestly, the the first thing that started it was uh, when I was doing one of my internships um, at Tufts University, um, we did a lot of uh, fecal microbial transplant in horses with diarrhea. And this is something that has actually kind of been around for a while as far as giving healthy um, intestinal contents or healthy, you know, um, feces to horses who are struggling with colic or diarrhea, particularly. Um, And uh, it's it's really something that kind of is just done because some veterinarians have had success with it. And then it's kind of gets spread around as sort of, you know, this kind of anecdotal thing that works. But, um, you know, the the kind of question has sort of always been, why does it work? And so that's something that really was, you know, kind of what drove my interest in trying to figure out why it works and how it works. Um, And that kind of then you know, just leads you directly to the microbiome, um, because, you know, that's really what we're doing is we're basically trying to take the gut bacteria and the microbiome from a healthy horse and give it to an unhealthy horse and, you know, kind of give them a transplant of that material to try to encourage better GI health. And there certainly is a lot of things in the human literature, and um, it's expanding in veterinary literature, too.
0: Yeah. And when I was going through the questions that our listeners uh, submitted during registration, there were a lot of questions about diarrhea, fecal water syndrome, and just dealing with those chronic issues. I know I've managed a horse. He was wonderful. And we always said he had a sickle tail because, it yeah. was, I mean, it didn't matter what we did for him, um, tried and tried and tried. So hopefully we can talk about some solutions because that was, you know, 10 15 years ago and and now I think we have more options. So before we jump into our questions, I want to give everyone a review of our Ask the Horse live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question that you'd like to ask live from our audience or you'd like a clarification on one of Dr. Long's responses, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you if you joined us on your computer. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible. If you're listening to our archive or podcast and you're interested in uh, joining us live during one of our events, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorse live. So with that, we're going to go ahead and get started. Our first question is from Lisa in South Carolina, and she wants to know what pre- and probiotics, you might recommend for horses to maintain a healthy microflora in their digestive tract. And part of that answer, I think, that, um, that we're looking for is what's the difference between a pro and prebiotic?
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is definitely a question that comes up a lot. Um, And so uh, a prebiotic is when you give, um, usually we think of like a nutritional or food product that uh, supports uh, growth and um, kind of development and reproduction of healthy bacteria. Um, It can actually occur in any body system, but we specifically mostly talk about it in the intestines. And then a probiotic is when you're actually giving a bacteria um, to uh, a patient, a human, an animal and trying to kind of give them almost a transplant of that bacteria. Uh, so those are the those are the difference in those two. And um, there certainly, again, is, you know, a lot of these type of things with the microbiome relating to probiotics and prebiotics is really we're we're learning more and more every day. But one of the things that we do know is um, and one of the reasons that I actually really am a strong supporter of prebiotics over probiotics is uh, that probiotics and horses, we, we really don't have a great understanding of what is the best singular bacteria to use to improve gut health. And there actually are some studies out there that show that, um, particularly in foals, but also in adults, that administration of probiotics can actually cause some harm. So in foals, probiotics actually um, have been uh, linked to increased risk of diarrhea in both healthy and sick foals. Um, and there actually have been also some um, kind of analysis of various kind of, you know, over-the-counter probiotic. Um, products designed for horses that that actually show that some of them can have um, some antibiotic resistance bacteria in them that isn't you know known to be there until you analyze them. And so for me, I think that I I want probiotics to be something that is going to be great for horses, but I think at this point we just don't quite know enough. And so when I'm talking to my clients, I I really push them towards a prebiotic uh, type product. And the the specific prebiotic that has the most positive research in horses is uh, called Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, It's a human um, product as well. It's actually a yeast um, and it has been shown in horses to um, alleviate um, the severity of salmonella and other types of diarrhea and also decrease kind of shedding of salmonella. And so, you know, it's it's something that isn't 100 percent and isn't going to cure a horse that has, you know, acute, really severe diarrhea, colitis. But it is something that has actually has some proven data behind it. And because there are human products available and that's a lot of what we use for them, you can actually get kind of a really pretty purified form of the Saccharomyces that, you know, contain what they're advertised to contain. So um, for me, that's that's kind of the main prebiotic that I go for um, for horses. Uh,
0: and for in. Human articles, health articles that you see, there's the suggestion of having fiber and eating fiber as a prebiotic. Does the same go for our horses
1: as forage helping uh, the way a, a,
0: a supplement would?
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so the the kind of, you know, obviously difference of horses versus humans even is that not only does fiber help them, but they really rely on, you know, fiber and forage. And so um, certainly the feeding of forage is kind of the, at the simplest level, you know, the, the kind of best prebiotic to help feed the bacteria. Um, and so that is something that, you know, is really important to consider. And I think luckily, you know, kind of the trend is becoming towards people realizing that, you know, sort of forage is important for horses. And and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about that, that that seems to be something that we're all kind as horse odors learning versus um, feeding really high concentrate grains and things like that which are not as good for the normal and healthy gut bacteria
0: so our next question is from donna and she sent it in via email and she wants to know which is the best product on the market to remove sand and dirt from horses colons uh, do you have something that that you recommend um, for horses that that might need that
1: yeah for sure so psyllium is really the the kind of gold standard product for removing sand and dirt from horses there's been multiple studies that show that psyllium is is kind of the you know the most effective way and there's a little bit of a difference as far as whether um, your horse has truly colic from sand and, and sort of a sand enteropathy um, which involves where you know they get such a big buildup of sand that they can get impacted from it or they can have a lot of inflammation in their intestines and again get colicky or diarrhea And so those cases really require a veterinarian kind of intervention to to give them high, like large amounts of psyllium through a tube into their stomach. Uh, But the same psyllium can certainly be used as kind of a preventative measure to help try to clear out sand for horses that live on sand, dirt lots, horses that, you know, maybe are in grass that gets really short during certain times of the year um, or anything else like that to try to prevent, you know, some buildup of that. And, um, you know, there's various different formulations of it, but psyllium is really, really the thing that has the best research for it.
0: And so many of us feed our horses a a flax meal uh, to supplement for omega-3s. Is that doing the same thing that psyllium does, or are you better off making sure that you're doing a psyllium treatment a couple times a year?
1: Yeah, if you if you really have you know a concern for sand as far as you know if your horse lives on sand or dirt or if they've had an issue in the past and they went for colic and you know that was the cause that was determined by by the veterinarian then um, you know certainly psyllium is really kind of the one that's going to be best omega omega threes and and things like that and are, are really great for just overall kind of inflammation of the gut um, but they're not necessarily as targeted at removing um, sand that is there so again certainly great products uh, but less about kind of removal of the of the sand.
0: Uh, We have a question from Mary in Arizona, and she wants to know how would a horse get a salmonella infection? She said she had her soil tested and it was okay. Her mare survived, but it was a close call. Should she be worried that her horse could get it again from her property?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that her horse uh, made it through because salmonella can certainly be a really devastating disease and can have, you know, unfortunately a, a pretty high uh, mortality, you know, in horses. And um, so salmonella is a tricky one because uh, what we've learned is that salmonella um, is out there in horses and they carry it in their body. Um, It's not so much that they have it their whole lives and, you know, just kind of shed it all the time, but certain things can make them kind of hang on to it, get sort of infected with it in their GI tract, and then shed it to other animals. And usually the, the kind of source of salmonella disease in a horse would be either that another horse on the property that doesn't have any clinical signs is shedding salmonella in their feces, And then the horse that gets sick, um, for whatever reason, has a, a cause that makes them more susceptible to getting disease from it. Because plenty of horses can have salmonella and not have disease. But for instance, if a horse is stressed, Um, or, you know, going through some sort of other illness, they can be more likely to actually get sick if they pick up salmonella from another horse. Um, And again, it's through the feces on the ground, but again, it's, you know, definitely from that horse. And then the other thing that can happen is that horses can get sick from salmonella. It's in their own body already. Again, maybe they go through a stressful event, you know, they have surgery for an orthopedic condition or something like that, Um, go through a colic event, and they can start shedding salmonella. And, Oftentimes, they don't get diarrhea just when they start kind of shedding it in their, in their poop again, but they can get sick from it. So those are really the two main ways. And, you know, again, there's, um, you know, I'm not recommending that you go out and test every single horse that your horse has ever been in contact with salmonella uh, for salmonella because, unfortunately, it is shed periodically, um, intermittently. And so you can't always catch it when you test their feces. The time that we tend to catch it is when they're actually sick from it. Um, and so that could be a little bit tricky, but the best thing to kill salmonella is sunlight and, um, you know, uh, kind of having um, open air, um, as well as trying to clean up fecal matter as much as possible.
0: Our next question is from Ophelia in New York, and she wants to know what you can do to prevent GI issues, specifically gastric ulcers, when giving horses NSAIDs. So uh, can you touch on why uh, that might uh, cause gastric ulcers in horses and then what we can do uh, to help prevent those when our horses do need a little bit of butte um, to manage something else like osteoarthritis pain or, or an acute injury.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, the way that NSAIDs work is again they they decrease inflammation, um, and so what they do with that is they downregulate a lot of products in in this inflammatory cascade that happens in our body. As far as you know, cells releasing um, a bunch of kind of inflammatory mediators, and uh, some of that cascade actually is uh, a little bit you know helpful for other things. And so when the NSAIDs are decreasing that inflammatory cascade they're also um, down regulating uh, specifically prostaglandins which are actually really good for uh, vessel and uh, mucosa health and blood flow to mucosa and so that uh, kind of decrease of that blood flow is what causes the issues that we see and so uh, the main things that we think of in horses and certainly gastric ulcers can be from NSAIDs for sure um, but we also um, worry about uh, renal or kidney damage uh, because of that and also uh, right dorsal colitis which which is often referred to, kind of, you know, in lay terms as hindgut ulcers, um, which again is specifically referring to a specific part of the large colon that is most sensitive to use of NSAIDs. So that's that's how they work that way. Um, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so as far as, you know, preventing kind of GI issues from them, the best way to prevent them is to not give NSAIDs for long periods of time, which I know is what everyone is not trying to do, right? But I think, you know, sometimes, especially if you struggle with a with a musculoskeletal issue, you know, being cognizant of the fact that really those medications are meant to be given for, you know, up to a week, maybe two weeks at a time and, and should always be given under the direction of a veterinarian, Um and then um, the kind of other caveat being that certainly GastroGuard and, and things like that can help, you know, prevent some cause of gastric ulcers. But actually, uh, GastroGuard is, sorry, Omeprazole um, paste um, is uh, something that um, works a little bit more for decreasing acid. And so it's not necessarily exactly kind of targeting the way that um, NSAIDs work. And so it certainly can be helpful, but honestly, the, the kind of main recommendation I have is making sure that they aren't on NSAIDs for too long and that you use the again guidance of a veterinarian to try to come up with alternatives if they do need long-term pain control and also trying to make sure that they're continuing to eat really well and drink a lot of water because those um, those both are, um, you know, uh, ways that you can kind of help uh, mitigate damage to the kidneys as well as to the intestines, so.
0: And there's a related question from Heather in Ontario, Canada, and she wants to know specifically about the long-term use of furococcib. Um, so that would be our equiox um, that a lot of horses get as an alternative to Butte. Um, and it's thought to be not uh, quite as hard on the horse's uh, GI tract. Can those horses that are on that, especially long-term, have the same kind of ulcer and colitis issues that they might get from from other NZs?
1: Yeah, so the, you know, the ferococcib medications, the Equiox, what they're working to do is, you know, more selectively target one part of the pathway of inflammation um, versus kind of the whole the whole pathway. And so uh, they certainly are less likely to cause uh, GI issues and renal issues. But there is some evidence that long-term use of ferococcib can um, especially cause elevation in blood markers that indicate kidney damage um and i have seen some horses that have had that present to the hospital as far as the gastric um you know uh side effects as far as ulcers or colitis they seem to be uh less uh you know less of a risk for that than the kidney damage uh but certainly it is something that i think is is possible because they are sort of in the similar pathway and so unfortunately right now we don't have you know studies on really long-term use like years um and so i think that's something that you know is certainly Good to keep in mind if your horse is on it for a while that you know you need to be monitoring blood work values, um, you know potentially if they have any issues that might be concerning, you know have a veterinary exam to try to see if those uh, problems are arising.
0: Okay. Uh, we have some questions that have come in from a live audience. The first is from Jane, and she wants to know if she should be concerned about free fecal water in her horse. Um, her horse usually has it only for a few weeks in the fall, so it seems to be seasonal. Should that be concerning? Should she be addressing that, or should she let it take its course?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So the the thing of you know sort of free fecal water um, is, and for those of you who haven't you know kind of seen that um, condition, what what happens is horses will often have kind of normal or slightly soft manure, and then around it or at the end of defecating, they will have you know some liquid uh, kind of that comes out. Um and so um uh, the the time that that does occur most is in the winter um and so that is certainly something that we see um, in, in horses. And, and I've seen that before. And I think most horses luckily are not bothered by it. So if it's occurring for a short period of time, you know, they usually are, it's more of kind of a cleanliness issue for the, for the managers um, versus, you know, something that actually is going to affect their health. But certainly if it's something that, you know, becomes more severe, um, you know, your horse is not acting normally, um, or you just want to make sure that there isn't anything else going on, it's, it's always appropriate to have a veterinarian, you know, come out and, and take a look and make sure there isn't anything more sinister going on. We have a
0: question from Jen in our live audience, and she wants to know what the best treatment for foals with heat scours might be. Um, Would it be a microbiome transplant that you've mentioned um, from the mayor, or would prebiotics
1: help? Yeah. So um, interestingly, certainly actually one of the best things would be um, using kind of feces from the from the dam. Um, And uh, a lot of times, luckily, foals will eat their mother's manure on their own um, to coprophagia, which is certainly, um, you know, not great to watch necessarily. But at the same time, is actually a really good thing. And that is them basically giving themselves a fecal transplant. Um, You know, some of the things that can happen is certainly if the foal is, you know, starts out a little bit ill or the mother is having issues, sometimes that doesn't work like it should. But um, certainly, as I said before, you know, I would lean towards more so um, prebiotics as well as, um, you know, uh, just making sure that, um, you know, they are staying kind of hydrated during that period of time. Luckily, most foals that go through that are not, you know, clinically affected enough that they need anything more than just monitoring. And it's really self-limiting. And, and so, again, luckily, it, you know, even though it can be sort of frustrating and, and cosmetically, you know, um, uh, annoying, um, luckily, most foals are, are usually pretty, you know, they bounce back pretty quick. So, um, and, and again, the, you know, there there is much less studies in foals as far as fecal microbial transplant in foals. Um, and so that's something that I think we still need to elucidate a bit more kind of is that truly the best way to do it. But to me, physiologically, it makes sense that that would be um, something that would work. But again, the, the data is is a bit more lacking in foals than adults.
0: So, when in a foal is diarrhea a, an emergency concern that you need to talk to your vet? I mean, you could go, "Oh, it's it's you know they have diarrhea, the mare's in heat, this is normal." But there's there's that tipping point when when the foal could become critical. What are the signs of that?
1: yeah exactly. So the things to really look out for is if the diarrhea doesn't resolve on its own with just in just a few days. Um, or if the foal is at all not acting normally, right? So foals with foal heat diarrhea, um, yeah, maybe not quite as feisty as normal foals, but they usually still run around play. They're still nursing very well. Um, you know, they're still doing all the normal foal behaviors, but, you know, if at any point the diarrhea progresses to, you know, worse as far as it's really, you know, really frequent, really watery, the foal stops nursing, looks more quiet. Um, you don't see the foal urinating frequently like it should, you know, foals usually kind of urinate every time they stand up pretty much. things like that are all all signs that you should be more concerned. Um, Also, foals with full heat diarrhea don't often get fevers. Um, They can, but they don't usually. And so certainly monitoring a foal's temperature during that period of time would be really important as well.
0: We have another question from our live audience. Didi wants to know if you can comment on strategies for treatment of free fecal water syndrome.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, this this um, is I I wish that I had a magic bullet for for all of you, but um, it actually is um, something that is still not very well understood um so what i will say is that um you know the the kind of sort of understanding of what horses it happens to and and kind of when it occurs is um you know usually geldings older geldings and usually during the winter and especially i have a lot of owners report that um you know when their um horse uh you know the grass starts to come back in for instance again with us when we hit here where i am where we have really snow and everything um that in our area that's when owners report that it you know it kind of will improve um there has been a study just one study but a study that has looked at um whether the microbiome of the the fecal microbiome is different in horses with fecal water syndrome versus horses that don't have it um and it's definitely a well-decided study and unfortunately you know they didn't find any difference in the microbiome and so you know in my head i always try to think of okay maybe fecal transplant would work i'm certainly a big proponent of that but the data seems that to support that maybe that's not the reason it's happening Um, I think one of the things to consider is you certainly can try a prebiotic, um, even though, again, maybe the microbiome is not the issue. Um, You know, something like Saccharomyces would certainly be something to help. And then honestly, actually, you know, psyllium supplements, um, I think, could be really helpful because not only does psyllium help clear sand, but it actually actually provides um, really good um, nutritional products for the bacteria in the horse's gut for the good bacteria. And so um, it can certainly be something that can actually kind of encourage, you know, really good kind of gut health and help decrease inflammation as well. Again, we don't really have a great understanding of exactly why fecal water syndrome has, which makes it really super frustrating, so.
0: We have a follow-up question from Jen in our audience and it's about uh, fecal transplant. She wants to know if a fecal, uh, if a microbiome transplant could be the first step before assuming a horse has gastric ulcers and putting them on anti-ulcer medications. So should we jump to doing the, the microbiome transplant or is there another path to diagnosis and treating before we get to that step?
1: Yeah, so certainly I would say, you know, the the kind of way to do fecal microbial transplant is a veterinarian to do it because, you know, uh, as easy as it would be if adult horses would eat feces, uh, they they tend not to. And so you do have to tube them with the, with the transplant. And so what I would say is that, you know, having a veterinarian assess your horse based on what clinical signs you're concerned of, you know, kind of why you think maybe it'd be something that will benefit them would be the first step. Um, The gastric ulcers is something that, you know, and we can talk um, a little bit later, you know, if if it kind of we get to there about, you know, the symptoms of gastric ulcers. But um, if it's something that you are concerned about, symptoms of gastric ulcers, uh, then that is something that I would recommend trying to diagnose that before going to microbial transplant because currently most of our understanding is that the microbial transplant is really helpful for the large intestine or the hind gut of the horse because that's where most of the bacterial fermentation occurs and so while there are bacteria in the stomach it's um, not nearly as important of a mechanism for you know kind of protecting the stomach and why horses may or may not get ulcers so.
0: And our next question is from Claudia in Wisconsin, and it's specifically about gastric ulcers and what are the clinical signs of ulcers in a horse. And then also Karen in Scotland wants to know if horses' behavior will change dramatically if they have gastric ulcers.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So gastric ulcers, definitely behavior change or um, reluctance to work or, you know, kind of not perform their normal tasks. Um, is something that often will be kind of the first sign that owners pick up on for gastric ulcers, and that relates to the pain from the gastric ulcers, right? But the pain isn't is usually not severe enough that you know they they kind of show it all the time. It's more you know kind of activities that might make uh, the pain of the gastric ulcers worse. And one of the things that we know is that uh, there are two types of gastric ulcers, but the gastric ulcers that occur in the upper part of the horse's stomach, uh, what we call the squamous epithelium, is related to um, acid splashing up on that part of the stomach because that part of the stomach doesn't have a good protection against acid because it's not supposed to have acid touching it. Um, and so the way, unfortunately, that we manage our horses, as far as you know, meal feedings versus constant access to food, does as well as exercise, can predispose them to that acid splashing up. And so some that's why we often see that horses will have signs of you know behavior change or maybe signs of pain or you know discomfort or kind of being um, you know irritated when they're ridden um, or when they're you know when their tack is being put on, other things like that. So those are kind of some of the classic sort of trigger things that that we hear for gastric ulcers. The other one is that um, hay is actually less um, stimulating for acid production than grain. And so a lot of times clients will comment that horses will eat their hay totally fine, but will start to not want their grain, either not eat it at all or not finish it. And so that's another thing that might make you think more gastric ulcers. Um, It is the rare adult horse that has colic from gastric ulcers. So, you know, down... You know, looking at their side, rolling things like that, but it is possible. I have seen really bad bad gastric ulcers cause colic, um although again it is it's not usually that severe
0: yeah and i I've had one of those, and it's uh it's frustrating and a little scary um' cause, yeah. <laughs>
1: So yeah, for sure. um,
0: sure. Yeah, yeah. and so Tamara in British Columbia, Canada wants to know if there's an amount of time a horse can go without feed before ulcers form. She wants to know how much feed should they have before they exercise? And so this is an interesting question because like my little mare who has gastric ulcer issues um, is a fairly easy keeper. And so she does so (laughs) much better when I keep hay in front of her 24 hours a day, but then she blows up, and yeah. it causes yeah. a whole other set of problems. So where what, where is the balance um, between feeding them 24 hours a day and keeping them in a good body condition?
1: Yeah, for sure. I th- I find those are really some of the most frustrating, um, you know, scenarios. Is you have a horse who can eat air and basically gain weight, and but they also have gastric ulcers because those are definitely in some ways kind of competing um, issues to have. So um, the there have been some studies that look at um, you know kind of holding horses off feed and and then scoping them repeatedly to look for gastric ulcers, and uh, you know the there isn't necessarily one magic time point, but it seems to be in kind of the the 12 to 24 hour range where some horses will start to show um, signs of gastric ulceration, and that doesn't mean that they have, you know, really deep bleeding ulcers, but they can show some signs that maybe there is some irritation of the stomach occurring. And that's again with kind of complete fasting. Um, So you know, in in the kind of range of, you know, horses not having food overnight for a period of, you know, six hours, you know, something like that is is usually not something that in in itself is going to cause gastric ulcers and so you know uh that is that is a, a good thing right because it means that you know you can hopefully feed your horse some hay and then kind of go to bed and then and then get up in the next morning to feed them more um and as far as easy keepers again you know certainly one of the things that can help is trying to find ways to make their you know consumption of their hay uh slow down um so that they're not you know kind of eating it all at once uh if they're especially are having to have less hay than maybe another horse their size because they do put on weight so easily
0: I Kristen in Washington wants to know if there's a feeding routine that you would recommend after horse has gone through a round of gastroguard and sucralfate treatment for, for gastric ulcers
1: yeah so the the kind of um there are some horses that i will say have um don't read the book as far as you know they might not kind of do what the majority is but for the majority of horses um having constant access to forage is the the best solution and so that does involve you know pasture access um it's kind of the easiest way right if you have a pasture they can go out and grease in it that's kind of mimics their their natural feeding state the most. But certainly that isn't an option for all horses. And so then mimicking that with forage feeding um, and try to give them to have as much forage as possible. And so you know sometimes that just means you put hay in front of them as much as you can and throw it a few times a day. For other horses, if they can't have as much hay or they eat really quickly, um, we will recommend, you know, some slow feeders such as hay bags um, with various size holes. There are all sorts of products out there. And and you know I think for me the main thing is whatever works for your feeding system and also that your horse will tolerate, not destroy, um, trying to get into it, um, not, you know, kind of hurt themselves trying to get the hay. And so it, it can sometimes be a little trial and error if you do have to go that route. Um, there are there are a, a small number of cases that I have seen where, um, for whatever reason, being out on pasture is not actually st- uh, lower stress for them or a better option because uh, sometimes, yes, they might have a constant access to grazing, but maybe when they're out in pasture, they miss their buddies who who don't, aren't also out of pasture or, you know, they're turned out with other horses that might be bullying them or something. And so I have had some horses that we make that recommendation and it doesn't actually seem to help their ulcers. So, um, you know, that really is kind of under the guidance of your veterinarian and kind of, you know, repeat gastroscopy, scoping to look for ulcers and things like that to kind of you know, see if they're one of those odd cases, but for most horses, they, they read the book. So
0: yeah, a, a lot of trial and error there. And like I feel like I've tried every hay net and slow feeder <laughs> on, on the market. I have a good collection of them. I could have a little museum yeah. of, of horse slow feeding, uh, options. But
1: yeah, um,
0: exactly. Yeah. So we have a question from our live audience. Pam wants to know what your experience is treating a horse with inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, Is there any new research? So IBS, that's not something we hear a lot about in horses. Is that something um, that, that you're seeing research on?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So we definitely have described in horses, um, inflammatory bowel disease. So IBD, which is, you know, a truly sort of, um, you know, inflammatory, you know, sometimes you see the term autoimmune condition where basically, you know, the horse's intestines are in a pro-inflammatory state. And that can cause them to have various issues such as colic, uh, weight loss, diarrhea Um, Things like that, and it it is something that you know certainly can be um, can be difficult to manage. And there are a few different types of IBD um, based on what type of inflammatory cells are involved. And so you know the kind of um, uh, there there is some research for sure as far as you know kind of um, what the best way to manage them is. And I think it in my hands it is a combination of management as well as medications. And I try to avoid the medications if possible because most of the medications the kind of you know what we often will, will sometimes have to go to is corticosteroids, um, which, again, have their own risk of side effects in horses. And, um, you know, certainly you would like to try to avoid giving the medications if you don't have to. Uh, sometimes, depending on the type of inflammation, sometimes antihistamines will work. And then for other horses, something like a low bulk diet. Um, so basically avoiding true long stem forage feeding. So either feeding a complete feed um, or, you know, hay pellets or chopped forage can sometimes seem to have a, a benefit as far as it's it's sort of less work on their intestines. Um, but the the kind of ideal would be is, you know, if you have a horse who um, has, you know, weight loss or colic, um, or, you know, diarrhea, chronic diarrhea, um, you know, as, as part of the veterinary exam, they can try to assess if they think IBD is what's occurring. Uh, by using ultrasound um, or, you know, um, you know, other things like that. And then biopsies are, unfortunately, the definitive way to diagnose it. And I say, unfortunately, because those can be um, not something that's usually done in the field. It's usually in the hospital setting. Um, and so that that is a little bit of a different diagnosis there. But yeah, there, there is some research that's out there that's trying to look more at a kind of non-medication things. Um, and I do think probably I, inflammatory bowel disease or the slightly kind of less uh, severe condition of IBS or inflammatory bowel syndrome, which is maybe not as kind of much of an autoimmune condition, is is probably underdiagnosed in horses.
0: And so is there a relationship between IBD and uh, leaky gut syndrome? Because we do hear that talked about in horses, but um, and in cattle, I think there's quite a bit of research. Um, but what do we know about it in horses and is it related to IBD?
1: Yeah, I think, again, I think this is where we start get into the realm of we're still learning a lot uh, as veterinarians and researchers as far as, you know, how all those things interplay. But it is certainly would be naive to assume that the gastrointestinal tract has fully been figured out by us uh, in the horse. And so I think that um, the there is certainly likely a component of inflammation related to a lot of the conditions that we see, whether it truly is what we would characterize as inflammatory bowel disease as far as severe enough inflammation, consistent enough inflammation, Inflammation, you know, that is that is related to, you know, the horse's genetics or whatever factors might be involved, which again we still don't fully know in all cases. Um, just like in humans, sometimes that we don't have a great understanding. But um, I think it's I think it's likely that there is a component of inflammation in many conditions we see, including yeah, leaky gut syndrome, you know, hind gut ulcers, um, recurrent colic, things like that. But again, it's it's a little bit of something where I think that we are are probably under diagnosing in that inflammation and you know whether it's truly something that could be diagnosed as true inflammatory bowel disease or just that inflammation plays a role in a lot of the diseases we see.
0: We have a question from our live audience. Kay wants to know what your experience has been with acid rebound following gastric ulcer treatment with omeprazole. Uh, Do you have any recommendations for time course of treatment as they come off uh, that drug?
1: Yeah, there there was actually a recent study um, that did look at that. That is something that happens in horses, and it's something that I know is documented in humans as well. Um, and so, in horses, the current recommendation is to taper off, um, you know, Omeprazole, uh products, Gastrogard uh, after a course of treatment. And so, you know, for most horses, they will get, you know, kind of a full body weight dose of of um, Omeprazole and Gastrogard, and then when you stop, them, we often recommend doing kind of a half dose, you know, for you know several days two a week, and then a quarter dose for, you know, several days to a week, and then stopping. Uh, Because we, I think that's something that we have learned more recently in horses and, and, um, you know, documented that that does occur in horses. So it's definitely something that you don't want to stop that medication cold turkey if they've been getting a course of treatment for gastric ulcers.
0: Eileen in California wants to know how you can tell the difference between a horse having gas and a horse that's colicking.
1: Yeah, so um, colic, you know, similar to you know human babies and all that, really just means abdominal pain. And so, you know, the the kind of tricky thing about that is that there are many, many things that cause colic, and sometimes it doesn't even have to be related to the intestinal tract. Um, it can, you know, be anything else into the abdomen. So kidneys, liver. Although certainly in horses, by far and away, the the most common cause of abdominal pain is from from the intestine. And so um, gas is a type of colic that we see in horses where gas colic or spasmodic colic, which um, is luckily usually a relatively easily resolved um, problem. And some horses um, will either not need any treatment, might be uncomfortable, be rolling around, look really painful. And then without any intervention, we'll just stop being uncomfortable. Um, or sometimes all they need is one dose of an NSAID, like, you know, Flunixin, and then they are totally fine. Um, what I will say is that, you know, if there is something where your horse is showing signs of colic, um, the the really kind of the way to determine what is going on and how serious of a problem in is to have a veterinarian out. Um, certainly many owners have linux in at their at their farms and have it to use. And if your horse, you know, if that's been prescribed to you by a veterinarian for that horse for certain instances, it's one thing. But, you know, it, sometimes if you give a horse a dose of linux and they might look good while it's on board, but it's actually kind of masking something more sinister. So, you know, gas colic is, is a type of colic that's usually short lived, but it certainly can look similar to other really more serious conditions. And we had a
0: question from Debbie in Florida, and she was asking about lipomas, and those can cause colic as well. Can you explain to us what a lipoma is?
1: Yeah, so a lipoma is a benign fatty tumor. And the reason I say benign is because it doesn't spread throughout the body, so it doesn't metastasize. It's not malignant. Uh, but unfortunately, benign implies that it's not a big deal. And, and in horses, lipomas can actually be a really serious problem. And what happens is these, these um, tumors grow over a period of years, Uh, sometimes just a few years, sometimes most of the horse's life. And in some horses, they don't cause any problem. You would never know your horse had them. But in other horses, they can cause um, acute severe colic that requires surgery. And the reason that happens is that these tumors will grow and as they grow, they grow on a stalk. So they almost are kind of like a ball on a string. And that ball can wrap around various parts of the intestine and block both um, you know, food and ingesta from moving through the intestine as well as block the blood supply to the intestine. And um, when that happens, it's again a, a serious emergency and horses will be very, very painful from that. And um, it is something that almost always requires surgery to correct.
0: We have a question from Daisy in our live audience, and this is going back to gastric ulcers. She wants to know if you have any ulcer treatment or management recommendations for an insulin resistant horse. So here you have a metabolic horse that that might not be able to be eating hay 24 hours a day. What, What recommendations might you have
1: for her? yeah so the the one overlap between gastric ulcers and metabolic disease that is helpful is that low starch or low sugars is actually beneficial for, for both of those conditions, so for insulin resistance as well as for gastric ulcers because the sugars the starches such as you have in grains um certainly trigger more of um ulcers than uh low starch things such as you know forage and particularly you know kind of low starch haze. And so, one of the main things is really to make sure that you are feeding a low starch hay, uh, which you can have um, hay testing done because, unfortunately, while there are some kind of trends in different types of hay versus alfalfa, you know, actually can have lower sugars and starches than some orchard grass hays. It can be very variable based on the load of hay, you know, and and kind of the time of year and all that. And so, um, luckily, most um, states have free testing of forage through their, you know, state co-ops. Um, that you can kind of send in and get free testing or if not free at least very inexpensive so that would be kind of the main thing is that make sure that you're feeding low starch forage um, and again also avoiding feeding grains and so what that would be is you can feed ration balancers which basically are low calorie um, vitamin and mineral supplements and that can help you know give your your horse that might have struggled with insulin resistance the vitamins and minerals they need that might not be in the hay uh, while also preventing you know giving them too many calories And then again, it it does go back to kind of the slow feeding aspect as far as, you know, however, you can you can try to find a way to spread out their meals so that they get consistent food as much as possible. Whether, again, that's a slow feeder, um, you know, if your horse happens to live at your house, maybe you can feed them hay, you know, multiple times. If you're if you're lucky enough to work from home or or work near home, again, that that becomes tricky. But those are kind of the the things that, you know, you, you would be focusing on
0: yeah I was gonna say I work from home, and I have for a long time now, and I feel like all I do is feed horses. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, you're your own slow feeder, basically, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes them like you a lot when when you bring them <laughs> hay four times a day, so um. Yeah. I have a question um, from Albert in Arizona. It's another colic question. Albert wants to know how quickly after an initial uh, intervention for colic at home should you take a horse for a surgical evaluation? So where is that tipping point where you need to get them to the clinic that, that they can't be on the farm anymore?
1: yeah so so in in my kind of um you know sort of uh mind is that ideally, I think it really is is ideal to call a veterinarian out to evaluate every episode of colic, especially if it's the first time your horse is coliced, so they don't have a history of it, so you kind of are you know not sort of sort of used to kind of what they tend to do um and then you know the veterinarian on their exam might find some things that say. Oh, you know, we really have to go to the hospital. So, again, for instance, things that, you know, require um, that the horse is not able to eat. So they're refluxing, which is basically the horse equivalent of vomit. um, And so, therefore, they can't eat or drink water. And so they need continuous IV fluids, um, or their level of pain or what they're finding on their workup might be such that the veterinarian says, you know, this is not something to even try to manage in the field. The kind of second scenario would be if maybe the workup is such that, you know, they think it can be tried to manage in the field or if you don't have a veterinary now and you give a dose of banamine, my recommendation is pretty much always that if a horse gets a dose of banamine of Flunixin um, and, you know, an NSAID and it, it wears off and they're still uncomfortable, that is a time for me when I much more encourage people to bring a horse in for referral because there might be something more sinister going on that needs, you know, extra attention or, or unfortunately, even surgery. Um, But the other caveat that I would have is, um, especially if you have flunixin on hand and, you know, are giving it to your horse for colic, do not feed a horse after you give them flunixin for, you know, at least six to 12 hours after giving that dose. And I know that sounds counterintuitive from an ulcer standpoint, but I have had horses that the flunixin makes them feel good enough that they will continue to eat despite having a serious problem and that can actually make the problem much worse so i always instruct owners that if they give a dose of flunixin, that they need to not feed the horse um definitely not hay and and if anything only just kind of mashes and allow them to have water uh, versus letting them eat because the horse doesn't know that they shouldn't eat if they feel better So So
0: if you go ahead and give that banamine dose, how long should that last? And at what point, if your horse is still feeling better, do you know that, well, the banamine worked and actually the horse is feeling better because we're past the efficacy of, of that drug?
1: Yeah, so the, the peak efficacy is for the first 12 hours after you give it. It does have some effect for up to 24 hours, but certainly if you give your horse a dose of banamine and they become uncomfortable within 12 hours, that's a bad that's a bad sign. Um, and if after that 12-hour period the colic returns, then to me that would say that it's, it's not working. So the kind of 12 hours are the critical period, but there can be some effect for up to 24 hours, but much less so. And i'm gonna give everyone a tip i
0: my husband installed uh cameras in my barn um and I had a colic a couple of weeks ago um and having the cameras were huge because I could check on my mare from from my phone and see her and kind of get some peace of mind and get some sleep um and then wake up and check her again, and I could see. That she'd had some water because her water bucket was down. Um, so, and I saw that she had pooped because I could see that from from the camera. So, um, if if that's something that you can do and you have Wi-Fi in your barn, I just really highly recommend that. And it was only a few hundred dollars to get a camera in there, and it it definitely is worth it. So, that's my my sales pitch on uh, <laughs> cameras in in the barn. Um, So we have a question from Robert in Wisconsin, and he wants to know if certain breeds have been found to pass along a genetic predisposition to certain
1: gastric ailments. Sorry, I was just taking a drink of water. Um, So yeah, so um, there are a few breed um, predispositions that we know of, um, and the kind of biggest one being Frisians, who are obviously very beautiful, but unfortunately do struggle from some certain types of colic, Uh, the main one being gastric or stomach impactions, where their stomach doesn't empty as it should, and so food can build up. Um, And that can be something that can be a a pretty serious deal. Um, Luckily, doesn't require surgery to fix, but unfortunately can recur. Um, And then standard breads are actually predisposed or have a higher incidence of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, And so they are some that might be more likely to have kind of recurrent colic that way. Um, a lot of the other breeds, it's it's kind of a little bit more related to their management of why certain breeds might be more likely to have uh, certain types of colic. So, for instance, um, thoroughbreds, obviously there's a large operation of thoroughbred breeding in certain areas of the country. Um, and so those mares might be more likely to have a large colon volvulus or basically a twist of their colon. But again, whether that's really related to the fact that they are thoroughbreds is probably less likely than just kind of, the fact that um, we see a higher incidence of that type of colic in, in pregnant mares um, or mares who just fold. So, okay.
0: um, so with uh, the management piece, I know I know people have recreational horses. And they'll be like, oh, my, my horse has no stress in their life. There's no way they have gastric ulcers. Is it possible for horses uh, that aren't showing in, in performance programs to get gastric ulcers and, and be suffering and maybe their owners aren't noticing it?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we certainly do see a much higher incidence in horses who are competing because of, like I talked about, the fact that, you know, they they probably do have more stress and and also um, they have, you know, kind of more splashing of acid up into their stomach from the the frequent riding and also maybe are managed more with more infrequent meals. But I have certainly seen ulcers in horses that are just pasture pets, um, you know, that, that kind of sit around and do nothing. And, you know, I think some of the things to remember is like we talked about long-term NSAID use for maybe maybe they're retired because they have an orthopedic issue and so maybe that predisposes them to um, what we call glandular ulcers or ulcers that are in the bottom of the stomach which are most susceptible to NSAID things or it could just be unfortunately something that maybe we haven't figured out why it happens, but they are predisposed to ulcers. And I have some horses that I I don't have a great reason for why. They seem to have the least stress-free life, um, but they do get recurrent gastric ulcers. And it in that case, it is a lot of management of, of unfortunately a somewhat of trial and error of trying to figure out what works best for your horse and kind of to keep them from getting recurrence of ulcers, whether it's you know how you feed them or or you know where they're kept on your farm, whether they like to be in a stall or not in a stall or, or things like that. So um, I often find that those horses, it's more so kind of a little bit of a, of a detective work to try to figure out why they're having ulcers than the horses that are in active training and competing.
0: We have a question from Cindy in New Jersey, and she said weaning can be a really stressful time for, for foals. Should weanlings be given ulcer guard or is there an alternative to help them during that transition?
1: Yeah, so um, I, you know, uh, am, am always a little bit hesitant to use um, omeprazole products as a prevention for ulcers um, because of the fact that um, it can, again, has been linked more so in foals than, than wean lean, so younger age, but has been linked to, um, you know, increased risk of diarrhea, like I talked about. Um, as well as, you know, there is a reason that horses have acid in their stomach, right? It's, it does serve a purpose. And so for me, you know, um, it's more so trying to, you know, kind of ensure that you have, um, you know, it, it can be easy if you have multiple weedlings. It's certainly helpful for them to be weaned together. That can be kind of reducing the stress. And then also um, a medication called sucralphate, um, which is actually kind of coats ulcers, um, can also be something helpful um, be- as a preventative. And I, I tend to reach for that as more of a prevention, especially in um, foals or weanlings, because it can coat and kind of heal any areas that might be starting to get eroded or irritated, but is not gonna affect the acid production at all. And so shouldn't interfere with kind of normal digestion. And so that's something that, you know, is a prescription medication from your veterinarian. So you can certainly kind of talk about that, um, you know, with, with uh, in conjunction with your veterinarian and and I think
0: uh, we have some research on the horsecom um, and maybe our producer Jennifer can can look for it and pop it into the chat um, about some less stressful ways to wean so the transition away from the mom and, and the diet is hard but there are ways to do that in, in a more progressive way that's maybe not as dramatic as we've done in the past I know um, when uh I was younger and, and weaned horses. It was always pretty traumatic, even just as a human <laughs> being around it. It's it can be pretty stressful. <laughs> yeah, um exactly. And so uh we'll we'll see if Jennifer finds that article and pops that in. Um to help Cindy out. Uh, we have a question from Alex in our live audience. She says she has a thoroughbred sport horse that travels to show frequently. Uh, she says it's a demographic that she knows is prone to gastric ulcers. Should she get him on a daily probiotic or a different kind of gut supplement to give him support?
1: Yeah, so um, certainly I think that, you know, um, the, there there is different research as far as various things that can try to help prevent um, gastric ulcer formation, um, and a lot of them are kind of you know single ingredients or looking at kind of combination products that you know are looking to try to prevent ulcers. Um, and um, so, if your horse has not been diagnosed with ulcers already, um, then you know some of those things that you could consider again are are something like um, even you know some of the psyllium, some of the saccharomyces. Again, they're not as targeted at the stomach, but you could consider those. Um, some of the other things that we know are some of those. Um, again, just kind of anti-inflammatory things, um, so some omega-3s, but actually one of the kind of things that I really like the most is trying to quote unquote buffer the stomach acid, and and I find the best way to do that is if your horse is able to eat alfalfa, to use some sort of um, small feeding of alfalfa hay um, once a day uh, before rides particularly, or something like alfalfa cubes, you know, hay sauté cubes, um, because that kind of has a natural um, buffering effect from the calcium that's in the alfalfa. And luckily, you. kind of do small feedings of that so it doesn't have to be all that the horse eats um and so you know you can kind of use that to manage that they don't you know just get alfalfa and you can kind of work it into their normal diet
0: Uh, jennifer our producer found that article Uh, you can go to thehorse.com 17528 and it's uh, about research-based weaning tips to reduce stress. So if anyone has babies coming this spring, check that article out. It was pretty interesting. Um, Janet in Nampa, Idaho wants to know how likely it is for a horse to colic if they've already colic in the past.
1: Yeah, uh, this question a little bit depends on what type of colic the horse had. Um, So there are certainly certain types of colic that we know that um, are more likely horses will have recurrent episodes. Um, So again, certain types where the colon might get gas ascended and move out of place, Um, Or again, twists like I talked about before. Um, But there are other ones that we luckily often see them kind of just one and done. Like, for instance, if your horse has surgery to remove a lipoma that has caused an issue, luckily that, you know, that recurrence of issue is unlikely to happen again because, you know, you've removed kind of the offending source. Um, and so I think also, though, there is a large um, amount of work that needs to be done looking at recurrent colic in horses and chronic colic, because we do certainly have some horses that will have vague episodes of recurrent colic, and we don't know why, and the episodes might be similar as far as how they present, and, you know, sort of trying various things doesn't necessarily always stop it. And so there certainly is, you know, a risk, but it a little bit depends on the type of colic um, that your horse has had.
0: We have a question from Terry in Florida who wants to know what the first signs of colitis might be.
1: Yeah, so colitis or, you know, what we often talk about is kind of acute diarrhea. Um, one of the tricky things in horses is that diarrhea in colitis is not actually always the first sign or sometimes doesn't even become one of the major signs. and so. One of the first things that owners will often notice is a horse might be less interested in eating or might be acting quiet or not quite themselves. And oftentimes that's actually because they have a fever. And so I always recommend that owners have thermometers at home. Um, certainly mercury thermometers are fine, but, you know, you can get those digital thermometers that you just buy at the pharmacy and those work well too. Uh, because if your horse is not acting quite right, not really wanting to eat, uh, taking a temperature can be a really helpful way to know, you know, kind of what might be going on. And will also be super helpful for your veterinarian to know um, if, you, if you're giving them a, Call. Um, so again, kind of quiet, not wanting to eat um, could be one of the first signs. Um, lying down more, things like that, having a fever, those are often kind of the first thing you'll see. Um, and certainly, um, you know, uh, you might also see diarrhea and it might kind of start as their feces just looks more soft than normal and kind of progresses to diarrhea. But again, usually for me, the first thing that clients will say is, oh, my horse wasn't really acting right, was kind of quiet, not really wanted to eat, maybe lying down more than normal. Um, and that, that is kind of one of the things to tip you off.
0: We have a question from our live audience. Katrin wants to know if uh, bots can cause horses to have ulcers in their stomach and what's the best approach to dealing with them?
1: Yeah, so um, bots luckily are something that tend to not cause horses too many issues. Certainly, where they attach in the stomach can cause some damage um, to that that stomach. But again, most of the time when we have bots in horses' stomachs, they're usually incidental findings. Um, Whereas, you know, we might be scoping them for a reason that's not causing pain and we see the bots. Or if we're doing a gastroscopy to look at the stomach and we find other ulcers, you know, and when we heal those, even if the bots are still there, it's not really the problem. But the way to deal with bots is um, they're very sensitive to ivermectin dewormers, and so One of the things that we are seeing is that now as we are trying to be better about not over deworming our horses is that sometimes we see bots more frequently um, because we are giving them less, you know, or maybe not at all giving them ivermectin dewormers. And so, um, you know, working with your veterinarian to come up with a deworming plan, but using an ivermectin product or avermectin product once a year is usually enough to control the bots. Um, Also, the bot eggs will live on horses legs. They're little yellow, small um, kind of round eggs that stick a lot to the horse's legs and their side. And then when the horses nuzzle or lick and, and then swallow those eggs, that's how they get in the stomach. So if you see that your horses has those eggs on their legs, you can also work to kind of remove those before the horse can swallow them.
0: And then, you know, that's something that we haven't talked about um, tonight. And we actually, we, we only have about four minutes uh, left, so I don't know how much we can cover on it, but uh, internal parasites, Uh, what kind of effect can that have on the horse's digestive system um, and should owners be worried about that damage?
1: Yeah. So what we're learning is that, you know, internal parasites are kind of a normal part of horses' lives. And so it's probably, you know, the goal for horses is not to have them have no parasites. It's really to have them not have too many parasites Um, versus, you know, when you're talking about dogs, you don't want your dog to have any parasites because they live in your house and you don't want to be around their worms. Right. So it's a little bit different of a goal. But um, one of the main things that we see with parasites in horses is either no signs. If they have a low enough burden, which is good. You can sometimes see colic. Um, particularly if as the worms are going through different parts of their life cycle, they might be more likely to cause inflammation in the gut um, and therefore discomfort. Um, or you can see diarrhea. Um, usually it's more of like a chronic diarrhea, but again, when the when the worms are going through different parts of their life cycle, sometimes they will have kind of an acute, you know, um, exacerbation and, and get acute diarrhea and, and can be severe. Um, but certainly kind of like you know, any horse that sort of, you know, has trouble putting weight on, um, has an ill thrifty coat, you know, a poor hair coat, might be something to kind of investigate the worms, the internal parasites.
0: We have a question from Lisa in our live audience, and she wants to know if there are any updates on rotavirus, and she said, particularly variant B in horses.
1: Yeah. So, you know, rotavirus is something that, you know, we used to kind of consider was could cause a lot of diarrhea in foals, but actually was relatively self-limiting. But in Kentucky, they have definitely had this outbreak of this new strain, which can be really severe and and cause a lot of disease. Um, And so I know that there's a lot of work being done in Kentucky to try to figure out, you know, how we can prevent that that from occurring and you know, working on, you know, various vaccinations for that specific strain and things like that. And so a lot of that research is still ongoing. Um, and so unfortunately it is, it is still a big problem, especially in large groups of mares and foals that are being commingled. Um, so uh, that is definitely a developing area right now. We have a question from Jen
0: in our live audience and she wants to know if diatomaceous earth can help with sand ingestion and colic.
1: So diatomaceous earth most of the time when I'm hearing people kind of you know ask about that it's related to deworming and what I can say is that it is not effective against internal parasites um, in a way that is that is really as useful as dewormers and so more so an effective deworming strategy is better for that. As far as sand and colic um, I think you know the there is some evidence that maybe it helps a little bit with inflammation and things like that but unfortunately there's a lot a lack of kind of true data that says it's definitely effective um, it's probably one of those things that isn't going to hurt and may help, but um, I always hesitate to use that phrase because, again, we used to say that about about probiotics, and I think we're learning that maybe that's not true. So I, I would kind of have that, you know, as a caveat to other things too, that maybe there is kind of, you know, we don't know fully the effect they're having. But um, yeah, I, I myself haven't used diatomaceous earth a ton for kind of addressing colic and things like that, but there is some some things to suggest that maybe it would help. Okay.
0: Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. We, we did some rapid fire there in the last 10 minutes. So thank you, uh, Dr. Long, uh, for helping get to all of those questions. I, I want to thank you for joining us uh, and answering. We, we covered a lot of ground uh, tonight. And so thank you for, for being willing to ride along with us and answer the variety of questions that we have. We appreciate it.
1: You're so very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I also want to thank
0: our sponsor Purina for bringing this event to our audience uh, free. Um, To everyone who's listening, thank you for being here during our live event and for those in the future for listening to the podcast. We hope that you can join us next time live. Uh, Until then, from all of us at the horse, have a great night.